Welcome, everybody. We're very excited to uh, have a special episode of School Psych Podcast. We're not live tonight, um, but we are uh, recording right now. We're in the middle of spall week, so happy uh, School Psychology Awareness Week to everybody out there. Hope that the week is going well. Um, not sure when this episode is going to air, but I'm thinking probably after spa time, so hope it hope it went good. Um, but my name is Rachel, and I am a school psychologist working in Maryland. Rebecca? Hi, I'm Rebecca, and I'm a school psychologist working in an independent school in the state of Connecticut. Hi, Anna. Hi, I'm Anna. I'm a school psychologist working in New York State. And Eric? Hi, I'm Eric, and I'm a school psychologist working in Connecticut. And it is my pleasure to introduce um, Dr. Ross Green to everyone tonight. Uh, Dr. Green is a clinical psychologist and acclaimed author. Um, he received his undergraduate from the University of Florida and his PhD in clinical psych from Virginia Tech. Um, he's the author of several books and a process uh, called Collaborative and Proactive Solutions, CPS, is the founding director of a nonprofit organization called Lives in the Balance, um, which has numerous free um, information and resources online. So. Um, Dr. Green will hopefully share uh, more about his website and resources. Um, I have a quote from one of his books that uh, really struck me. So I'd like to start off with that and then um, ask Dr. Green to, to jump in. Uh, but this quote is, the wasted human potential is tragic. In so many schools, kids with social, emotional, and behavior challenges are still poorly understood and treated in a way that is completely at odds with what we know or what is now known about how they became to be challenging in the first place. The frustration and desperation felt by teachers and parents is palpable. Uh, and that is from Dr. Green's book, Lost at School. Um, Dr. Green, would you tell us about your approach and uh, an introduction into how you came uh, about this process? Sure, but first of all, thanks for inviting me to do this. Sure. Um, you know, uh, I always talk about these six key themes that go along with this model. I should probably run through them quickly because they really do give the lay of the land. Um, key theme number one, and this might even be the biggest, is that this is a problem-solving model, not a behavior modification model. It's actually not a model that's focused on behavior at all, um, although the research tells us that the model improves behavior every bit as much as models that are oriented toward modifying behavior. But this model is focused on what I call what's going on upstream. As I always say, behavior is what's floating to us downstream. The problems that are causing those behaviors are what are waiting for us upstream. Uh, in this model, as I always say, you are paddling furiously upstream to try to identify the problems that are waiting for you there. Because, uh, of course, if we don't identify what those problems are, they won't get solved. Um, this is a problem-solving model. And what I find is that the usual tools of behavior modification, which is carrots and sticks, uh, generally speaking, wouldn't be expected to solve most of the problems that are causing the behaviors that we are applying those carrots and sticks to in the first place. And as uh, the vast majority of school psychologists would well know, uh, schools tend to be very carrot and stick oriented in their approach to behavior problems. Um, so that's key theme number one. Now, I always add that's going to have very important implications for assessment because in schools, but also everywhere else, we primarily, when we have a kid who's got behavior problems, assess the behavior. 
Um, so we do behavior checklists, we do behavior observations, we do functional behavior assessments. Also, we can come up with something known as a behavior plan, all focused on what's going on downstream. In this model, we think of behavior as simply the signal, simply the fever, simply the means by which a kid is communicating, I'm stuck. There are expectations I'm having difficulty meeting. Now, uh, if people are behaviorally trained, like I was, this could sound very alarming to them. Except that I always like to remind people that B.F. Skinner um, paid just as much attention to the conditions under which behaviors occur as he did to the behaviors themselves. And yes, he said that behavior is the only thing that's observable, the only thing that's objective, the only thing that's quantifiable, but just as observable, just as objective, just as quantifiable are the conditions under which those behaviors occur. And in this model, um, those behaviors are referred to as unmet, those uh, conditions are referred to as unmet expectations. And unmet expectations are referred to as unsolved problems, problems that are waiting to be solved, problems that have yet to be solved. So key theme number one is huge because it is, quite frankly, for most school discipline programs, transformative. Takes us away from a primary focus on behavior, and it points us toward the problems that are causing those behaviors. So that's huge. Key thing number two is that now that we are in problem-solving mode, we want to be solving those problems collaboratively, not unilaterally. This is something you're doing with the kid, not to him. Key theme number three is that the problem solving needs to be proactive, not primarily emergent or reactive. As most people who work in schools well know, a great deal of the intervention that takes place for the kids we are most concerned about takes place in the heat of the moment, emergently, reactively, not only uh, poor form in the problem solving department, but also completely unnecessary since those unsolved problems tend to be highly predictable. Um, I like the cat. (laughs) I take it it's a therapeutic cat. Um, I have three of them. I'm a cat lady. (laughs) Person, if I wasn't so allergic to them, I would still have them. But um, I can only own cats if I'm on steroids, and I don't really want to do that. So cats have gone by the wayside in my life. Key thing number four is understanding comes before helping. Boy, do we take 10 giant leaps forward when we finally start to view this kid through the prism of lagging skills and unsolved problems. Key thing number five, and by the way, when we start to view kids through those prism, we stop saying things like attention-seeking, manipulative, coercive, unmotivated, limit testing. He can do it when he wants to. Um, He's yanking our chain. He's pushing our buttons. That is just language that is never used in the CPS territories. Key thing number five is the one everybody knows from the books. Kids do well if they can. Not kids do well if they wanna. Kids do well if they can. If this kid could do well, he would do well. 
if he's not doing well, the biggest favor we can do that kid is to finally at long last figure out what's been getting in his way. Mm. What skills is he lacking? What expectations is he having difficulty meeting? And key theme number six is doing well is preferable. This is, uh, for me, a statement of the obvious, but it also refutes the idea that these kids are behaving badly because it's working for them for secondary gain. Um, There are competing contingencies at work. This kid would very much prefer to be doing well. The difference between well-behaved students and behaviorally challenging ones is not that the well-behaved kids want to do well and the behaviorally challenging kids prefer doing poorly. As I always say, good luck finding the study that tells us behaviorally challenging kids prefer doing poorly. That study doesn't exist. Um, This is all about lagging skills and unsolved problems. Behaviorally challenging students want to do well every bit as much as everybody else. This is not a matter of motivation. It's a matter of skill. So those six key themes are sort of the underpinning behind the two major practices that are involved in this model. Goal number one, figure out what the kids' lagging skills and unsolved problems are using the instrument that I developed called the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. And goal number two, start solving those problems, but do it collaboratively and proactively. Then you've got a partner. Then you are involving the kid in solving the problems that affect his or her life. And then, as the research is telling us, you are simultaneously teaching the kid the skills he or she is lacking. So that was, a, that was as short as I can do it, but there you have it. That was great. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. I'm looking at the ALSA online right now. Um, it's in the, for everybody watching, it's um, it, on the Lives in the Balance website under resources and paperwork. And I'm wondering, Dr. Green, if you could maybe walk us through an example, if we can make up a kiddo that um, might have some of these lagging skills and how we as school psychologists would begin to um, collaborate with he or she, with him or her. Um, and so I'm just thinking, I'm looking at this list of lagging skills, and I can see a lot of my kiddos who have maybe difficulty maintaining focus, um, uh, difficulty, let's say, how many How many lagging skills would you start with? <laughs> you start at the top and you work your way down. Okay, so if there were 10 of them, you would check them all? Well, if there's 10 of them, you definitely check them all, but there are many kids. Yeah. Uh, especially the kids we call frequent flyers. Okay. have every single lagging skill checked off. Every single one of them. Now... Here's the good news. Notice I said that this is a problem-solving model. So the lagging skills are mostly for lenses. Okay. The lagging skills are how we refer to this kid rather than referring to him as attention-seeking, manipulative, coercive, unmotivated, blah, 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 right? Um, But we are not on the hook for teaching those skills in an explicit manner. Those skills are going to get taught by engaging the kid in an ongoing process of solving problems collaboratively and proactively. 
So what I always tell people is, first of all, a kid who has a lot of lagging skills checked off, that's actually very compelling. It's, it's very compelling evidence for the fact that this kid is, in fact, lacking a lot of skills and that maybe we've been missing that and we don't want to miss that. But the hard part, and the second thing I always say is that checking off a lagging skill on the LSIP is the easiest part of completing the instrument. Um, if, if two people, and this is a group activity, this is a discussion, right? So it's not really a freestanding checklist. It's more of a discussion guide. Um, it's a guide for pulling people together to get them on the same page, get them talking the same language about a kid, and persuade those who are viewing this kid through lenses that are not related to lagging skills to start recognizing, boy, this kid really is lacking a lot of skills. It's the unsolved problems that are hard to write, but it's also the unsolved problems that are going to be the primary focal point of intervention. Once again, this is a problem-solving model. But the reason the LSIP is so important, especially for our frequent flyers, and by the way, in every school, depending on the size of the school, there's 10, 20, 30 kids who are accounting for 80 to 90% of discipline referrals. Those are the kids I refer to as frequent flyers. Those are also the kids I worry about the most. Those are, as I refer to them, those are the kids we lose. Um, we have to have an LSIP on those kids before we start trying to solve problems because, number one, if they have every lagging skill checked off, there's a good chance this kid's going to have 50, 60, 70 expectations he or she is having difficulty reliably meeting. Mm. We got to know what they are. We got to prioritize. Otherwise, we're going to do the same thing. We always make the mistake of doing. We're going to try working on everything at once. You try working on everything at once, you'll solve nothing at all. We got to prioritize. But the ELSIP is really what organizes the effort what makes this systematic, helps us know what our priorities are, what we're working on, what we're not working on. The ELSIP is just crucial. Now, just one more quick point. If a kid only has one or two unsolved problems, you don't need to fill out the ELSIP, right? Just start solving the problems collaboratively with the kid. The ELSIP is really for the kids who are going to have a lot of lagging skills and a lot of unsolved problems because it's really crucial in those kids to organize the effort and get different lenses on yeah, that makes sense. It's the, the school examples for unsolved problems. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's say a kid is, let's say we check off the first lagging skill, difficulty making transitions. And by the way, mm, I would say 80 to 90% of the time that's getting checked off, right? Um, so here's some examples of unsolved problems. And, and by the way, what I should also mention to your viewers is that there is a 45-minute audio program to teach them how to use the ELSA on the Lives in the Balance website. It's in the CPS resources section. If they go to the educators and schools section of the CPS resources section, they can find what's called the walking tour. It's the first thing that's going to hit them in the face. And in the walking tour, if they go to the second section, which says uh, identify lagging skills and unsolved problems, they are going to come across a 45-minute audio program. All of this is free to help them learn how to use the ELSIP. Um, lots of people try to use the ELSIP without listening to the program. I don't recommend it. I'd recommend that they put the 45 minutes in to actually learn how to use it before they actually try to use it. But let's say we check off difficulty making transitions. Um, we then say to the group, it's a group activity, 
Can you think of any expectations Tommy is having difficulty meeting when you think of him having difficulty making transitions? Somebody in the group is going to say, well, you mean like uh, he has difficulty coming back into the classroom after recess? Perfect. Difficulty coming back into the classroom after recess is a great unsolved problem. Oh, now we get what you're saying. Well, he also has difficulty moving from choice time to math. Great unsolved problem. Let's write that one in too. What other transitions is he having difficulty making? Or better yet, let's stick with the wording. What other expectations is he having difficulty meeting that come to mind when you think of him having difficulty making transitions? Now, here's what's interesting. Somebody might say, well, he's also having trouble um, completing the double-digit division problems on the worksheet in math, but I don't think that's difficulty making transitions. What do we say next? We don't care. Any unsolved problem that springs to mind while we're thinking of difficulty making transitions, whether we think it has anything to do with difficulty making transitions or not, we are writing in the minute it pops into our head, right? So there's, I don't know, for difficulty making transitions, this kid might have eight to 10 difficulty moving from this to that across the course of the school day. Um, that's That's what that process sounds like. I could see also difficulty following directions or getting started after the transition. Those would be unsolved problems. So they're all even. Whatever happens after the transition is going to be a separate unsolved problem. Difficulty getting started on the um, worksheet on Shakespeare. Great unsolved problem. Uh, difficulty completing the lab report in science. Great unsolved problem. As you can see, especially for the frequent flyers. That list of unsolved problems could be 50, 60, 70 deep. And here's the cool part. They're all real. That can be overwhelming to finally identify all the expectations this kid is having difficulty meeting. I always say even more overwhelming than that is having absolutely no idea what those unsolved problems are and therefore no idea whatsoever what we could be busy working on with this kid. So we take, pick our poison on being overwhelmed. I'd rather know what they are than not know what they are. But I think you've just done this kid the biggest favor of his life. Whoever filled out this out, whoever got together and figured this out, finally memorialized every expectation this kid's been having difficulty meeting, all of which could be setting the stage for challenging behavior. So now let's get down to brass tacks. If we're sending that kid to the office for his challenging behavior, and he's getting a detention or suspension. The reason it's happening perpetually is because the detention or suspension is for his behavior, but his behavior is simply communicating to us that one of these expectations that he's having difficulty meeting has just appeared on his radar screen. And here's the clincher. I promise you, a detention and a suspension, hitting a kid, depriving the kid of recess, not giving him a sticker, isn't going to solve any of the problems that are causing the behaviors that we're doling that stuff out for in the first place. A three-day suspension isn't going to fix the fact that this kid is having difficulty coming back into the classroom after recess. Three-day suspensions weren't designed to do that. That's one of the reasons that this model has a track record for dramatically reducing suspension, dramatically or or reducing or eliminating detention, Um, you're in the problem-solving business now, not the behavior modification business.
But what I sometimes notice is that when the, a difficulty or a problem even is identified, what the adults do is just um, restate the expectation, right? right. Like you're having trouble getting started, so get started, <laughs> and, that, and that also is not helpful. <laughs> well, I call that insisting harder. It's the prototypical first adult response to a kid not doing something they're expected to do or basically not meeting an expectation, right? Unfortunately, insisting harder doesn't help us understand what's getting in the kid's way of, of getting that expectation met. Um, doesn't do anything except remind the kid that it's an expectation we'd very much like him to meet. Yeah. Um, and regrettably, if insisting harder doesn't get the job done, what a lot of adults then do is they add adult-imposed consequences to the mix, safe in the belief maybe that the reason this kid isn't working on his, uh, isn't getting that expectation met is because he's not motivated. Um, the other possibility is that it's because they're not sure what else to do. Mm -hmm. So is there a way, if that's the trouble, that after the transition, the child can't um, get started on the next thing um, and say it's, you know, the Shakespeare uh, worksheet? And, the, and so you ask him about it, right? That's the next step. What, what's going on with that, right? What's, and what if he just says, well, I don't like Shakespeare and I don't want to do it. <laughs> what, well, what, how's that conversation go? <laughs> well, there's, what comes after the ALSIP and what comes after prioritizing is us deciding, uh, first of all, the prioritizing part is what are we going to solve with him? What, what are our high priorities? And generally speaking, any unsolved problem that's causing safety issues is going to be a very high priority. Um, if we don't have safety issues, then it's either going to be unsolved problems that are quite frequent or unsolved problems that are having a very significant negative effect on this kid's life or the kids of others. So gravity is another criteria, right? Um, we got to prioritize because a meaningful number of unsolved problems are actually going to get set aside for now. That's what we call plan C. The ones we've decided are high priorities, and that's usually just two or three in the beginning. That's plan B, and that's where you're solving the problem with the kid collaboratively and proactively. So there's three steps for doing plan B. The first step is what you were referring to. That's called the empathy step. That's where you're gathering information from the kid so that you understand his concern or perspective or point of view on that unsolved problem. It's where you're seeking information, right? Um, one of the reasons you're seeking information is because, for better or worse, our assumptions about what's making it hard for that kid to meet that expectation are usually wrong and usually oriented toward motivation or things that are going on in the kid's life. Um, when we're trying to kids explain a kid's behavior, we all become sort of sociologists. Um, and we, we point to everything. We come up with a lot of stuff we adults do. But as I'm always saying, your least fallible source of information on what's getting in a kid's way on a particular unsolved problem is actually the kid. And the empathy step is where you're gathering information from the kid. So the empathy step begins with the words, I've noticed that, and ends with the words, what's up? And in between, we're inserting the unsolved problem that we meant to be talking with the kid about right now. So in this case, it would be, I've noticed you've been having difficulty coming back in from recess and getting to work on the Shakespeare paper. What's up? 
If he then says, I just don't like Shakespeare, then there are eight drilling strategies that kick in next, right? Because the hardest part of doing all of plan B is the fact that we adults aren't exactly sure what to say to the kid when we need to drill for more information or probe for more information. And I don't like Shakespeare or I just don't like doing it doesn't give us a very clear understanding about what's really getting in the kid's way. Now we've got to start probing. And of the eight drilling strategies, the two that people are, and by the way, there's a drilling cheat sheet on the Lives in the Balance website too. It's in the paperwork section. Um, there's eight of them. I'm, I should only, I only usually talk about two of them these days in terms of presenting. Uh, the number one drilling strategy is reflective listening which, or mirroring, which practically every school psychologist has been trained in. Um, I don't know how many classroom teachers have been trained in reflective listening, so there may be some teaching and modeling to be done here. But if a kid says, I just don't like it, then this is an easy one. You just don't like it. Can you tell me more about that? And now we're rolling, right? I hate Shakespeare. You hate Shakespeare. Tell me more about hating Shakespeare. I don't understand anything he says. Ah, this is all reflective listening, by the way. By the way, you could do an entire empathy step with just that one drilling strategy. There's eight. Um, you just, you don't understand anything he said. You know, what, what parts of the Shakespeare thing you're supposed to be writing on the paper on do you not understand what he said? Now the ball is rolling. And all I'm doing is repeating what the kid said back to him and asking for more. This is so much better than us sitting there thinking, oh, I know why he's not writing on the Shakespeare paper. You know, he, he's, um, parents are going through that very difficult divorce right now. Um, and he comes from that neighborhood. And I think I read in his report that he was born with the assistance of, delivered with the assistance of forceps. And so it, here's what's amazing about all those, right? You can't do anything about any of those, right? And so all this theorizing that we do basically pushes us into the corner, ties our hands, and leave, renders us unable to help this kid. But if we learn that the kid is having trouble understanding certain parts of the Shakespeare thing, now that's actionable. That's something we can actually do something about, right? Second step, that's where we're getting our concerns onto the table, right? We have concerns too. Our concerns basically have to do with how the unsolved problem is affecting the kid, you know, if you don't get the Shakespeare thing done, um, you're not going to get the practice at writing on stuff that you don't really understand. Um, you're always going to not understand Shakespeare, and you're going to get more Shakespeare, right? This is adult concerns, right? And then the third step is the invitation. And this is where kid and adult are collaborating on a solution together and a solution that actually addresses the concerns of both parties. This is such a far cry from how we often solve problems with kids, not just in schools, but everywhere. Um, this is where the kid's voice gets heard. This is where the kid's concerns get addressed. This is where the adult's voice gets heard. This is where the adult's concerns get addressed. This is where we come together on solutions instead of having conflict because we adults are being so unilateral there's the overview of what you do next. Question. So 
with this empathy step and this whole um, conversation, like you said, you know, these are things that school psychologists are trained to do this reflective listening and the, the probing and, and whatnot. Um, so is it best that this step is done by a school psychologist? You mentioned, you know, the teachers might not have the training. So I, I feel like the teachers have the rapport, hopefully have some rapport with the child and know the child and, and might have a better understanding of what's going on in the classroom. But on the other side, they don't have the training and, and the, you know, we have the training, but not maybe that rapport. So who do you recommend does this? Um, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's not such a quick answer. Um, the, the person who's least ideal to do this all the time is the school psychologist, believe it or not. The ideal role for the school psychologist is facilitator. If teachers don't know how to do this, the ideal role for a school psychologist is to help teachers learn how to do it. Because I'm sure you all have had the experience of a classroom teacher who, by the way, is probably quite overwhelmed, has way too many kids in his or her class, has way too many initiatives being thrown at him, or, at him or her, has way not enough time, right? All these things that we're putting on classroom teachers, but we've all had the experience of having a classroom teacher approach us in the hallway and say, I got a kid I need you to work with, right? That's what we might call the handoff, right? Some people might in a less flattering way call it punting. Right? <laughs> um, either way, how can you who has nothing to do with the expectation the kid is having difficulty meeting. Solve that problem collaboratively. When you don't know what the kid's concerns are, you could find out, could you mute again? I think we're getting echo. And it started when you unmuted. There we go. Um, sorry about that. Um, you have no idea what the classroom teacher's concerns are. You can't come up with a mutually satisfactory solution without the person who's involved in the unsolved problem with the kid. You are the facilitator. There is no punting in this model. There is no handoff. You're involved, but the best role that you can play is to teach classroom teachers how to solve problems collaboratively and proactively with their kids. Um, believe me, there will be plenty of things for you to do in the building while you're being a facilitator. It's just that this practice of sending kids to somebody else for somebody else to either solve the problem or mete out justice, those days have got to be gone. Takes way too much time. Um, it doesn't work. You're a facilitator. So as you well know, reflect, it didn't take you that long to learn how to do reflective listening. It's not going to take a classroom teacher that long to learn how to do reflective listening. You're just saying back to the kid whatever the kid just said to you. Um, that's not that hard. There's really, although many people find the three steps that I just described to be challenging in the beginning, it's all about getting practice and getting some coaching from somebody who does know a little bit about what they're doing. Perfect role for the school psychologist. And I, I like that. Um, I like consulting because uh, I do feel like as a school psychologist, I'm, I'm making a, be a bigger impact because, yes, I could pull this kid and teach him this and I can pull this kid, but I can only pull so many kids. But when right. I work with a teacher, their skills are improving. That's helping all the students in their classroom and all the students in their future classrooms. I mean, you, you just have a bigger impact, I feel. That's correct. And boy, I cannot I mean the number of teachers who we and the people we've trained have helped good at, get good at this model. 
Um, this is this is not even close to being out of reach. It's actually really practical, and just with a little practice and coaching, we don't come across many people who can't do this. That's wonderful. That's so hopeful. It sounds a lot, um, well, a little bit like solution-focused counseling. Would you definitely some resemblance? Mm-hmm. I like that, and I wonder if a way. Um, once um, work after working with the teacher, if there's a way, if there is counseling that's happening, the school psychologist can take that approach with the child as well to sort of double up on the empathy and the um, and giving the child that feeling of um, of being empowered to say how he feels and make uh, create solutions on his own and, and notice when he's successful. Yep, and here's the interesting thing. I mean, when we get to the invitation, the kid is being given the first crack at the solution. Mm-hmm. And so kids are getting practice at coming up with solutions. But generally speaking, a lot of these, you know, it's not the kid's expect. generally speaking, it's not the kid's expectation that the kid is having difficulty meeting. It's an adult's expectation, right? Kids don't expect themselves to come back into the classroom after recess. They'd stay out to, to recess if they could, right? So that's an adult expectation. Um, so the important thing about this is the kid practice at coming up with solutions, but the solutions have to be not only that address the kid's concerns, but also that address the concerns of the other party. And that is just crucial. And to do that, we have to know in very clear terms what the concerns of both parties truly are. And that's what those first two steps are for. I find that the problem-solving process goes awry if any of those ingredients are missing. If we don't know what this kid's concerns are in very explicit terms, if we don't take the time, and I mean like five or ten minutes, to find out what's really getting in the kid's way, if we don't let the adult's concerns get into it into consideration, um, if we don't work together on solutions that address the concerns of both parties, I find that a lot of solutions don't work very well because those ingredients are the ones that we're missing. Um, so I'm in the middle of a FBA, of course, and going to write a BIP um, for a child who's at risk for not being appropriate in their placement, you know, due to explosive behaviors, yada, 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 right? So your, your model fits beautifully in my mind into the process, right? Instead of just writing an FBA and a BIP that doesn't really work, how can we how can we, I, blend your model into my plan? Well, there will be a CPS-flavored FBA posted on the Lives in a Balance website in about the next two or three weeks. Um, I'm working on it with some uh, BCBAs here in Maine and, and a special ed director here in Maine. Um, who else am I working on it with? Um, a few school psychologists are also weighing in. Um, There's already a CPS-flavored IEP on the Lives in the Balance website. That's in the paperwork section. I guess my attitude is if you get people together to figure out what this kid's lagging skills and unsolved problems are, your FBA is practically written for you. Uh, Your BIP is actually pretty much written for you. Um, Your IEP is pretty much already written once you have that information. The types of FBAs that I cringe over are the ones that are only talking about behavior and come to the automatic conclusion that the kid's behavior is working at helping the kid get, escape, and avoid. Mm. Um, What I've learned is that we all get, escape, and avoid, all of us, 
So simply saying, in a, if the grand conclusion of the FBA that we put all this time into is that the kid is getting, escaping, and avoiding, count me out, because that's true of everybody. What any good FBA needs to answer is, why is this kid going about getting, given that we all get, escape, and avoid, why is this kid going about getting, escaping, and avoiding in such a maladaptive fashion? And the answer to that question will be provided to us by one sheet of paper, the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. That's great. Um, one of the things that I, I, I think you hit on pretty, pretty well is the buy-in piece. You know, we, we have, you know, as, as mentioned in the quote that we started with, um, we all have research tells us what, um, you know, what works. We have uh, ideas and books that tell us what works. And then we seem to sort of sink to the lowest common denominator sometimes when we're in the thick of uh, behavior issues. And um, so getting everybody to sort of buy in and, and your comment about, um, you know, seeing success with classroom teachers, I think uh, is really poignant here because um, the people that are on the front lines are the ones we really have to get um, buy-in from and, and have them feel successful with these kids. I think that um, different avenues to buy-in. Mm. Um, First of all, we have history. If we're talking about a frequent flyer here, mm. if this kid's been a frequent flyer for a while and this kid has endured or been on the receiving end of countless detentions and suspensions, uh, what we're doing now clearly isn't working. Right. There's absolutely no harm in trying something different because what we're doing now clearly isn't working. So, um, you know, when you're in the helping, one of the helping professions, and education is one of the helping professions, so is mental health, so is being a medical doctor, um, but education is too. Um, if what you're doing isn't helping, um, then you're not being a helper. Mm. Um, and so buy-in just comes from what we're doing now isn't working. And a lot of principals and assistant principals and school psychologists can point to school data data that many schools routinely collect to point to the fact that it's the same 10, 20, 30 kids that are accounting for 80, 90% of discipline referrals. You don't need any more evidence than that to know that what you're doing is not working for those kids, right? Here, here's where life gets interesting on persuasion. Everybody's worried that if you don't do what's not working with those kids, then the other kids who really don't need that type of system anyhow, because they're not accessing it in the first place, will somehow stop meeting the expectations they were already meeting. Never, right? It's sort of a, what a right. myth, right? Um, so that's one avenue to buy in. Another avenue to buy in, part of that avenue, by the way, is to say what we need to do is shift from being primarily focused on the kid's behavior to primarily be focused on the problems that are solving that behavior, that are causing that behavior. The ALSIP is extremely persuasive. I mean, you get people using the ALSIP Lenses change during LSIP meetings, mm -hmm. right? You get buy-in during LSIP meetings. I must say that I don't buy-in at sort of a, what we're doing now isn't working and we should do something different level. I don't usually find that to be the major impediment. Okay. The major impediment is time. Mm. The, the biggest issue I hear from 
people who work in schools is that this is going to take more time. The data tell us this actually takes significantly less time because continuing to have a kid misbehave, continuing to send the kid to the office, continuing to have this kid miss learning, continuing to have the other classmates miss learning because of the disruptions, um, that all is extraordinarily time consuming. Um, this does involve transforming our lenses and transforming our practices, but that doesn't take anywhere nearly as much time as continuing to lose these kids. Yeah, that's a great point. Dr. Green, I'm wondering if this lens can be applied to groups. For example, when the unsolved problems are not necessarily disciplinary, but you know, a, cl a class full of kids that are very social and keep chatting when they should be doing independent work or kids that a uh, class that is forgetting to raise hands and instead just blurt things out. Is there a way for a teacher to talk to her classroom about what's going on and what well, can we do about it? I think teachers do a lot of talking to their classrooms, but if you're asking me if there's a way to solve that problem collaboratively as a group, my yes, and it is the exact same three steps. And I will be shooting video of that being done in classrooms over the next three or four months. And of course, whenever I got video, I posted on the Lives in the Balance website so people can see what it looks like. Um, th this is to me, uh, when, when you have the entire class solving a problem that affects them all together, there is nothing more beautiful than that. That's about as good as it gets. Um, it's also, though, a great exercise in kids learning to listen to each other. It's a great exercise in kids learning that the problem really isn't solved. Is working is addressing everybody's concerns. Um, to me, this is an exercise in a form of democracy that um, it wouldn't be a bad idea for us to get back to. That's a good thought. <laughs> a great thought. Yeah. So your website's my new favorite website. Um, you've also <laughs> written a lot of books. So, uh, school. We've got. I think most of our audience is like newish school folks. So is if there is there one of your books you'd recommend most for those fresh in the field and feeling a little bit need of more support? Lost to school. <laughs> lost to school. Fifty percent of lost to school is a running story, um, and so. Whoops, I thought I changed this off. Um, uh, Lost at School is 50% a running story because my goal in writing Lost at School was not only to explain how the model is used, but for people to read it and say, he's been in my building. Mm. Um, and so there are lots of characters in Lost at School, um, all of them with the best of intentions. Um, all of them dealing with what the pressures um, from all sides that people's, people in school deal with routinely. Um, there are people who buy in quickly. There are people who are hard sells. There are principals. There are assistant principals. There are, unfortunately, people getting hurt. There are kids who seem like they will be impossible to reach. Um, all of the types of characters that enter a school building every single day, I tried to include in Lost at School. 
Um, you know, obviously there's some schools that have way more behaviorally challenging kids than others. Um, schools that are in neighborhoods that are of lower socioeconomic status than others. But the bottom line is we've done this in all kinds of schools in all kinds of neighborhoods, all kinds of socioeconomic status, quite frankly, all many countries. And um, bottom line, what's in law school is what you do, no matter where. That's great. One of the things I appreciate about um, your website is that if you have colleagues who you kind of uh, would like to sort of cross over a little bit, um, you can send them anonymous care packages, as I like to call them, <laughs> of your materials, which I think is fantastic. It's the only thing on the website that people would have to spend money on because we can't afford to send all that stuff out for free. Sure. But yes, this is, um, you know, what I found early on is that people would say to me, boy, I wish this teacher knew about this model. And I'd say, well, why don't you give them a book? And they'd say, um, can't do that. They, they'd know it was me, right? <laughs> so I started thinking, really? So we just need a way to get this information in people's hands without them knowing who sent it to them? <laughs> That's easy. Um, the problem is it's very popular. So Lives in the Balance would go broke if we were doing this for free. It's the only thing on the web. It's the only thing on the website that keeps me from saying the website is 100% free, but it's 99.9% .9 free. That's great. But we've, we've sent these to mayors. We've sent these to principals. I mean, I've had many, as you all know, I've had many classroom teachers whisper in my ear, my principal needs to know about this. <laughs> and I've had many principals whisper in my ear, I've got a few teachers who are, you get the idea, right? So let's, you know what, let's get the information in people's hands. This is all about continuous improvement anyways. Right. Mm -hmm. That's great. It's, it's uh, positive. Very positive. And I just wanted to ask, are you comfortable when I'm talking to teachers and having LSAT meetings if I refer to you as my friend, Dr. Ross Green? <laughs> we are friends now. We've done a Google Hangout together. Um, okay, perfect. I have now interacted more than I do with most human beings just because <laughs> I don't have time to make friends anymore. Okay. Um, well, you have one of me. Thank you. That's so right. Much. You can count us all. <laughs> That's awesome. And I wanted to mention too, um, Anna and I, back when we were interns, um, we um, or grad students, I'm not even sure, but back back in the day, um, we went to an ASP together in um, New Orleans. And keynote speaker, we showed up, and it was you. And I just remember going in, kind of wide-eyed, you know, as a you never seeing so many school psychologists before. <laughs> just going into this giant room, it was like standing room only. Her and I ended up sitting like on the floor and taking notes, and it was just really cool. So it's really cool to have you on. It's like it's come full circle now. I feel very oh, accomplished just talking to and, you. And I think that keynote, that keynote is still posted on the Lives in the Balance website. Mostly because I just got I got so much positive feedback from it um, uh, that I thought this is one that's worth preserving. Oh, that's great! I'm going to check it out. <laughs> the only thing is, I'm not sure it was New Orleans. I think it was Washington D.C. Was it? Oh, we did go to D.C. We did. Maybe it was the D.C. one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It for Senator Al Franken, who of course is in trouble in the news today. But anyways. Oh. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, we did go to the DC one, you and Ayanna too. So that yeah. I must be confusing them, but I remember. Yeah. <laughs> Good times. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Green, for joining us tonight.
My pleasure. I really appreciate you having inviting me to do this. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Take care.